Hey there, it's Matt from Generator. I would love for you to be able to listen to all of our new episodes as soon as they come out. So please make sure you follow us on your podcast app of choice or just head over to generatorpodcast.com. Also, if you like the show and want to support me, you can now leave me a tip with no membership necessary. It's just like tossing a buck or two into the hat of a street performer. So when you listen to an episode at generatorpodcast.com, you'll see a donate button right in the player. And please know that while it's never necessary, It's always greatly appreciated. So that's it. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. And now let's start the show. Hey friends, I know you've seen them. The unforgettable movie posters, Blair Witch Project, I Am Legend, Creed, Deadpool. Well, have you ever stopped to think about the fact that there are artists out there that make these movie posters for a living and that it can be an actual career? My guest today is Dennis Dunbar, and he is the guy behind some of the most iconic images in film. As a professional retoucher, Dennis has been in the industry for decades, working with some of the top-tier talent agencies and the best talent in Hollywood. And we get to sit here and listen to him for the next hour, which is pretty cool for a nerd like me. We talk about how he got into the industry, the early days of Photoshop, some of the things that photographers get wrong when retouching, and some of the techniques he uses to make his art. Dennis is incredibly kind, startlingly humble, and I really enjoyed learning from this legend. So sit back and relax and join me as I talk to the wizard of retouching himself, Dennis Dunbar. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to talk to you because we've got your webinar coming up on color grading. I'm trying to get the inside track before you teach it. So I'm really excited to have you here. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. And I'm I'm very excited about that webinar. Uh, It's been a while since I've done one on color grading. So I'm trying to like retool it and figure it out. And I realized that I started writing an article about color grading. Like, okay, this is going to be like, first one's going to be a brief overview. And then there's like a lot of other articles to write about it. So good thing is I don't have to think about what the next article will be. It will be the one that flows from this one I'm working on now. Is is there ever a brief overview of anything in this world? Is there ever a brief overview of color grading or retouching? I can't imagine yeah, there is. Yeah, pro- probably, probably not. Probably not. But you know, like I, I enjoy the art. The, I enjoy writing the articles. Yeah. It's just really hard for me to sit down and get them done. So it's like once every three months or so. Like, man, I got to do this more often. I got, I got to be more consistent. You know, you're not alone. I think anybody that has their own website or runs their own website and knows about the power of blogging and writing in articles, inevitably the sentence that I hear from them afterwards is, ah, I got to do that more, got to be more consistent. And it's always the last thing on our list. So, you know, as I was going and researching some of the stuff that you've done in the past, I did come across a lot of articles and a lot of videos, and it just astounded me how much education you've put out there. Before we get into too much detail, give some of the listeners a little bit of the background, maybe, maybe the overview um, of kind of what you've done and that has led you up to this point where you're 
you know, one of the top retouchers in the film industry and commercial industry, right? There's a small kind of special forces group of you all. Well, when I was in college, way back when, uh, I was studying mechanical engineering and, and I wound up taking every course except engineering courses. So five years in, I was only halfway through the program and like, I'm telling myself something, I really don't want to be an engineer. And at the same time, uh, a really close friend of mine picked up a Canon AE-1 and he was the first person I could relate to who was having a lot of fun trying to create something interesting with photography. He called it artsy craftsy because he had no illusions about being a great photographer, but like these are not boring. Here's me and Mabel in front of the big tree kind of vacation <laughs> photos that you know you, people would show back in those days. So like, oh, I got into photography and like that swept me up and like stopped going, you know, I dropped out of engineering college because I really wasn't getting anywhere. Enrolled in a uh, local uh, adult education program that had a good photography program. Learned a lot about photography and that led to working in one of the rental houses in um, Hollywood in the late 80s. It was Irena's PRS, Irena's Photographic Rental Service. And it was probably one of the biggest in the country. And so everybody who's anybody came through there, like Gregory Heisler and and uh, Lynn Goldsmith and Henry Diltz and like all these famous photographers and stuff came through there regularly. And so when I left there, I was working as a photo assistant, working with advertising photographers. And they're like, yeah, I gotta you know, find out how to start shooting and doing on my own. And then I started hearing more and more about this thing, like, you know, the National Geographic used a computer to move the moon for the cover of a, one of their magazines. And you know, what a big scandal. I thought, ooh, that's cool. <laughs> so at, at one point, it just started to uh, get me more and more interested. So I remember there was one summer, it was like 1990, 91, some of that. Every day I wasn't working as an assistant doing something else. I was trying to find information about how you use computers to do retouching. Yeah. And so that led in, in February of 91 to getting a computer, signing a lease of like a $50,000 lease for a wicked fast 2FX and all the bells and whistles and stuff in those days. You know, like a 600 megabyte hard drive was right. bragging rights. At most. <laughs> and it was Photoshop 1. There was a, a another a competing program called Color Studio. The people who wound up writing Painter created sure. Color Studio, but another company bought it and then didn't do much development. So Photoshop passed it by. But, you know, we, we started out working on that and I thought, I got to figure out how I make a living and how I make this lease payment. So I started contacting photographers that I had worked with offering to do a uh, free portfolio pieces just so I could learn. You know, one thing led to another. I started working with uh, occasionally with this photographer, JP Morgan. He's still around. He's, he's uh, leading the education program at, at one of the local junior colleges out here, Mount San Antonio. Uh, great guy. And he was, he was doing a lot of work with Roger Corman, who was the king of B-grade movies, you know, like Little Shop of Horrors, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, you know, Death Race 2000, Perfect. You know, all, all this kind of stuff. And Roger wanted to go from the old-fashioned cut and paste and airbrush to computer stuff. So JP said, here's Dennis. That's what he does. So for about 10 years or so, I did all the retouching work on Roger's uh, posters and their marketing stuff. And it was, you know, a lot of schlocky movies, a lot of straight to VHS stuff, stuff you're not going to put in your portfolio or, or brag to grandma about, especially not brag to grandma about. <laughs> With Roger's 
uh, model for his business, what he did a lot was he had a lot of high turnover of people because he kind of viewed it as if I hire people who are learning, I don't have to pay them as much. And as soon as they know what they're doing, I have to pay them more. So I'll fire them and I'll hire their assistant and, you know, just keep running that. Mm -hmm. So he had a lot of designers that freelanced for him. And as the designers, you know, figured out what was what, they went on to other jobs. Well, that became a networking thing for me. So that started leading to getting, you know, work on movie poster stuff uh, and other things with that way. And I still also would work with photographers for that. So that's kind of how I got started in working on, on movie posters and all that. And in the 90s, I wound up having, you know, two or three people working for me at a, at a time or whatever. And I would compete with big retouching houses like um, iMagic or uh, Metaphors. You know, there were some big places, you know, charge $700 an hour or whatever for retouching working those days. So I would compete with them, but I never worked in-house at those. So I never quite knew how I, how my work stood up, except the fact that, well, I got, I got some jobs. So, you know, and then, and then I hired a freelancer who had worked at the other places to help me out with some projects. They're like, oh man, you got nothing to worry about. Your, your work holds up with theirs. So, you know, that, that was really good. At the end of the nineties, the workflow seemed to flip. I think computers started to get, you know, agencies, the entertainment agencies to do the design work for movie posters and stuff, uh, started to get a handle on, on the, on the technology. So they like, we want people to come in house and freelance in house. And, uh, so I, I flipped my business model and, you know, instead of being a manager, I went back to being the retouching and like, love that. And so, you know, went to a, uh, a lean and mean kind of work model where if I have a big project, I call up friends and, and, you know, we, we, work together on it but uh ever since then i've been working freelance and and uh on different movie posters and ad campaigns and all kinds of stuff it's been a lot of fun yeah it's it's impressive to go on your website which is dunbar digital and look through just the portfolio of work right so i'm going through and i didn't realize knowing that we talk i didn't realize how many of the the movies that I love, or the, I should say the iconic images, the I Am Legend poster, right? The Rock Jumanji poster, um, yeah. some of the Harry Potter stuff, the Blair Witch, right? All of these images that are relatively iconic in the film industry. It's cool to see that you've been able to work on some of those projects, right? Yeah. So before we get into some of, some of that, you've got to have seen so many trends come and go, so many tools come and go over the years. How has it been to watch the progression of that? Has it made your job easier? Has it made it harder? Do you find yourself, you know, in older workflows and trying to adapt it? How do you stay adapted and current to kind of this ever-changing landscape of tools? Well, one of the things I, I do love that the tools have evolved and gotten a lot easier Sure. Like back in the day when we started out, you're working on a uh, complex composite and you had no layers. So you had to save a lot of different versions and you had to figure out tricks for like there was there used to be a way with Photoshop where you could uh, have two documents open. If they were the same size, you could use a command to align the upper left corners for your clone source. And then you could clone from one to the other. Oh. And so that was your undo. Yeah. Like if you pasted something in, like, oh man, there was a mistake, you know, like you have to erase some of this stuff. That was how you undid it. So you had to keep thinking about these tricks and workarounds and things. Uh, 
you know, the tool won't let me do this. I need to do it. So how can I find a, a way around it? So we don't have those issues nearly as much. God, I love the idea about layers. I remember uh, Silicon Graphics uh, was trying to sell their, their uh, computers in the mid, late 90s for doing Photoshop work on it. And so they, get, they had like a, a program where they had uh, six radios. We, we call ourselves their pet artists. But I guess you, now you'd call it sort of an ambassador thing where like, sure. here's a Silicon Graphics computer. It was the little one, the one of the big massive one. But here's the Silicon Graphics computer. Here's the software and stuff. We want you to use it. And then we'll have you come talk around at, at conferences and stuff for it. And I remember one of the thing, one of the programs that ran on it wasn't Photoshop, but it was another one like, oh, my God, I can make an adjustment layer and I can brush a curve setting in somewhere. But it's not universal. Like, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> And and now it's like, you know, it, it just becomes so much easier. So yeah. I, I do love that the tools have evolved a lot. Um, I think the uh, we're getting better results faster. Yeah. So we're not, ha you know, I don't have to stay up till 5 a.m. multiple days in a row anymore. Uh, but I remember lots of those days starting out, you know, computers were slow and you just yeah. had to pound the workout. Uh, so we don't have to do that. I think um, the craft of what we're doing is uh, it it encourages you more to you know you have to get fluent with the program and the technology but it's more about the artistic craft now than just being you know somebody able to figure out a workaround and, and being more like the hacker mindset of something for that so i really like that aspect and the tools getting better like you know we're doing more work like in color grading than we did in the past because the tools weren't there so I, I love that the art of it is evolving and improving. And we still have these new tools coming out. Um, AI stuff is, is a big buzz thing. And um, while I'm not so worried about the idea of AI image generation, the idea about using AI for in-painting or out-painting really intrigues me. Because yeah. like, you know, uh, I worked on uh, some posters that looked like a wet plate kind of shots for uh, the Paramount show, 1883. Yeah. Sam and, Elliott, not that crew, right? Yeah. And, and like the, the character poster for Sam Elliott, they cut out the top of his hat and they cut off his shoulders and it only went down to like, you know, just below the breastbone. And I needed more of his body. So I had to figure out, look for other shots and stuff. Like, here's one where I can steal a shoulder. I can flip that and make another shoulder out of it. So AI tools could be a way of solving that. Like, here you know give me the give me more of his body like that could be really great or adding in something that, that was missing getting rid of things you need to get rid of like how do you get rid of this tree you know content aware in photoshop is so so on that it, it kind of worked well but you know ai could be really good for that so always trying to incorporate new tools and examine other workflows and that's one of the things i love about the the teaching workshops and stuff, because I'll go back and, and look at uh, something I might have taught like five years ago. And I'll look at the outline and the demo like, Lord, I do that completely differently now. What was <laughs> I thinking doing it that way? And I think that's that keeps it fresh and exciting. And, uh, you know, it, it really encourages you to embrace the idea about, you know, a love of learning yeah. and always, you know, working on something new. And that's exactly the kind of person I want to be. Because as as we you know get older and, and time goes on, if you're the I've got my little bag of tricks and I'm not going to do any more with that 
your life's going to get stale and boring and you're going to fall into a rut really quickly. You know, I, I have older photography friends who are that way. Like, I don't want to learn another computer program. I don't want to learn another camera. I've got my thing. And I like that. Like, and then I have other ones like Energizer Bunny. They're, you know, 75 and, and they're Energizer Bunny and reinventing themselves again. Maybe out of necessity, but they're still doing that. Like, yeah. that's the inspiration I want to follow. Yeah, it's amazing when you have someone with a student mindset and it's this ever, this lifelong pursuit of learning. And those are the people that I'm always super interested in because the, the folks that never stop learning or at least quest that knowledge inevitably are far more interesting because they've tried a little bit of everything, right? And they just kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work. But going back to when you first got started and there was only a handful of you really starting to get into the mix of art and technology, how was that scene of your peers? Was everybody helping each other? Were you all just kind of in this, this mode of, this is the really cool stuff and we're never gonna turn this into something if we don't work together? Or was there a little bit of you know, friendly competition? How did, it, how did that scene evolve? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, so when I was first starting out, like I, I said, I spent a, a summer, you know, I got out the, the old fashioned yellow pages from the phone book because uh, this was pre-internet right. and, you know, calling everybody I could I could find. And there was this uh, guy, uh, Daniel Clark, who had a, a, a retouching company. And when I you know, got a hold of him and, and told him what I wanted to learn, you know, what I wanted to learn is like, why should I tell you? You just be competition. And click. And then I found another guy who ran a digital department in a big camera lab. Can't remember the name of the uh, the lab anymore. They're not around. But this guy, Charles James, uh, ran the, the digital department for that. And Charles' philosophy was, the more I teach people, the more I'm going to grow clients. And they're going to be our customers. Right. So that was his philosophy. So he gave me, you know, I, I paid a bunch of money to get lessons on a Dyco Imaginator, you know, million-dollar computer. And then... You know, another handful of lessons on uh, Photoshop and Color Studio on a Macintosh. When I was first starting out, every time I would get a job or have a question, I would go right down to that lab and talk with him about it. Uh, one of the guys who worked with him was uh, a retoucher friend I've known, you know, practically since the beginning, Daniel Ekoff. And, uh, you know, so, so Daniel remembers me uh, coming in, peppering him with a bunch of questions and stuff. And half the time, Dan wouldn't want to answer. And half the time, like, why should I tell you that? <laughs> but now, now, now Daniel laughs and says, like, yeah, I'm responsible for half of what you know. So, you know, there was the range of people who were like, this is my bag of tricks. I'm going to protect my territory. And then a few that wanted to help. But there really wasn't a great network. And finding the other people and getting to know them was difficult. And that's one where, like, uh, my friend Lisa Carney, yeah. who I, I, I met when she was first working with, uh, she assisted one of the clients that I had. You know, she she worked in house at at one of the big retouching companies, Metaphor. She wanted working in house there, and she built a network through the crew that worked there. And I missed out on that in the '90s because I was always working on my own or hiring people to work for me. So I was always trying to build that community. In the '90s and early 2000s, it was really tough because everybody was so busy. Why should I drive an hour to come somewhere? But a couple of years before the pandemic, we actually you know started uh, being able to successfully pull together a group of people. We called them LA Pixel Pushers. Uh, we would have meetings like every six or eight weeks or so. We'd get together at somebody's house or at a restaurant just to get to know each other. So it's only the last 
six, eight years who've been able to really build a network of people who not only have known each other through work, but get to know each other as friends. Sure. So, so that part has been really great. You know, I've noticed kind of the same thing over the past 10 or 13 years or so that I've been doing this. There's been much more of a movement towards collaborative work, less singular, less keeping all the secrets to yourself. It seems to be like everybody's sharing knowledge these days, which is really nice. Coming back to the some of the posters you were talking about it as art directors or the production houses give you these projects. Are they bringing you in earlier and earlier asking your opinion or are you always on the reaction side where they say, hey, here are the images you get, make something. Are they bringing you in earlier in the process as the the concepts get developed? Uh, Well, for movie poster stuff, uh, it's not very often. Yeah. Uh, The process for movie poster stuff is there is a pool of entertainment oriented ad agencies if you go to uh, impawards.com, uh, internetmovieposteraward.com, but impawards.com is a website, they, they have a thing where they show all the movie posters and stuff coming out, and they have a, uh, a tab for designers. And you'll see, like, you know, page of designers. But there's maybe eight or ten that agencies like BLT or Icon Arts or uh, um, – I just starting to work with another one, AV Squad. There's a handful of, of those companies that do the majority of this stuff. And so the studios give them, uh, sometimes it starts off with in the scripting phase. They haven't even shot the film yet. And like, just start coming up with rough ideas. So they'll have sketch artists or somebody like that sketching out ideas that the art directors are kind of giving them uh, for this, just to get some rough ideas about things. Mm-hmm. So it goes from there through many, many, many rounds of, of designs. They call them comps. Mm-hmm. And the studio, the studios dictate the terms for everything. So they'll say, we're going to take these five ideas you had and give it to your competitor and see what they'll do with your ideas. So everybody knows, like, that's just the rules of the game. Yeah. You know, you're going to get that. So it goes through all these rounds. Sometimes... You get this. This is count 142 that we finally got approved to go to finish, and the finishing stage is where you go from the lower res, roughly built comp to building the big final art and polishing it and making it look perfect and ready for final print. So that's the stage I come in. At. Gotcha. And on movie poster stuff, it's not very often. Like you know, sometimes I'll get a request like, "Hey, can you come in and polish up some comps for our presentation, or whatever, and help you know." make them a little better, but mostly it's the finishing work. When I'm working with photographers, it will be the opposite. Like we're bidding on this job. I think we're going to have maybe 20 shots to retouch. It's going to be like people in a park. Can you give me an estimate for the retouch? And like, I have no idea what they're going to look like. (laughs) And, and so, you know, we're we're just hoping to throw darts to the dartboard and hope you're close enough for that. Right. Uh, the photographers who have experienced reps uh, can be really great because the reps have a really clear idea about what the client expectations will be like, what the shoots normally are, what clients' budgets are like. Um, one of the bit better uh, reps in the country, Heather Elder, uh, anytime I'm working on a, on a project and it's one of the photographers she's representing and somebody on her team is going to be on it, like I know it's going to go great. You know, so so sometimes you come in really early in the process, yeah. 
for that. Um, and sometimes you're like at, right at the very end. Like a few weeks ago, I got a contact from a lifestyle photographer like, hey, you know, the client had more retouching notes than I can handle. Can you do this? Can you jump on these things and just do this retouching stuff? So sometimes it's very, very late in the process and sometimes very early. I was looking through your commercial portfolio. I'm fascinated by retouching. I'm not good at it. I do. I, but I'm fascinated by guys like you and Seth McCullough and like high-end re commercial retouchers that are working on big brands because it's always amazing to me what you're given and what the public sees. And that by no means am I saying like the photographs that are taken are poor photographs, but the subtle manipulation in it and the impact that those subtleties create fascinates me. And there is one image that you had in particular of a, a gentleman paddleboarding. It looked like in the uh, the, oh. the aqueducts of, of LA yeah. somewhere. And the thing that struck me the most was generally speaking, the before and the after, and these can be seen on your website, the befores and afters, is the before shot was good. You could, probably could have cropped in and color graded a little bit. It would be great. But by repositioning the paddle border, making them a little bit larger, adding a little bit more drama to it, and having it look still natural and seamless is such a testament to the work that guys like you do because it has so much more impact. Are those creative choices yours, or is this working hand in hand with the brand and the art directors to say, we're really thinking about this? Is that relationship, is that how that works? Or are you given basically when you get to that point where you are the retoucher that is being hired, that you have carte blanche based on what you know of their brand? How does that generally work in terms of your creativity input versus what they're telling you how to be creative? It's almost always a case where I'm being hired to help execute the client's vision, vision. help bring that to life. Yeah. So like that paddleboard thing, uh, Kate Turning uh, was a photographer on that. And she's an amazing photographer. The only gripe I have is like, I want to do more work with her. You know, <laughs> for the stuff. She, she's great. So she had the idea like, here, here are the different shots I, I did. I want you know this in the foreground. I want the guy moved over here. I want this in the background. So it was some of that. And then it was like, oh, you know, we need the color to pop. Like, you know, so I started experimenting with color grading and like finding like color grading and doing that. So I got some creative input yeah. for it, but mostly it's it's a question of, of like, how am I bringing your vision to life? The, I think the, the worst thing for a retoucher is when the photographer says, here's a bunch of shots, just make them look beautiful. <laughs> th th those are the times when like, you know, there are landmines there. You know, they have expectations they're not telling you about. And if you don't get them. I'm so surprised you missed this. How could you not have seen that? Like, so, so, you know, it's really the retoucher's job to bring the client's vision to life. Sometimes they want you, you know, they're upfront about asking like, you know, what do you think about this? How do we handle that uh, for it? And other times like, you know, I want your input, but like, yeah, no, I'm going to go with, with my own thing. Uh, do you know Emily Teague? She's- Yeah, a, sure. A, yeah. Wonderful. So, so I, I get to work with her on some projects and stuff. And Emily's really good about with her color. So sometimes I'll make a suggestion about like, oh, you know, what if we move the color in the background? Like, no, nah, you know, like, I love that you did that, but I want to go my way. Like, okay. Emily's also the last few projects she sent to me have been things where it's a lot more of a creative thing. Like, you know, here's the shot. I, I just worked with her on some 
something she called Gothic Cowboy. She shot when she was in uh, South Africa. And there, there were some really nice shots. Like, what can you do to, to make these, you know, enhance these and, and make them sing a little bit more? And so in that case, it's more of a matter of looking at that and like, how can I make, how can I enhance the lighting? Right. You know, the composition is really great. The color grading is, is really good. It's just like, how do I enhance the lighting and make it about the subject and help right. tell that story? And fortunately, she's been really enthusiastic about about the work I've done in that, because it's one of those areas where like you get a lot more creative input. It's like, you know, like, oh, here's what I think you know would help. Like, oh, I love that. What a great idea. I suppose it's just like anything. It's the more that you know about that personality, the more you know about their work, you understand where to push, where to pull back. And it's a really important thing, I think, for people to understand just how powerful some of those subtle changes can be. The smartest photographers I know don't try to do everything themselves. There's got to be someone there that does help you that last mile. And it seems to be you've found yourself in this wonderful position with great photographers where you're really helping them bring their visions to the world so that we get to see what they're doing in the way that they envisioned it. How many rounds do you typically go through? Is it two, three, four, five? Is it months long? Is it a week long? What's your typical turnaround time for something like that? That depends a lot on the project. You know, like uh, when I'm working on a project with a photographer yeah. and we do an estimate, I'll, I'll tell them, you know, we're going to include two rounds of revisions in the estimate. Now that's not between me and the photographer. Mm -hmm. That's between when we as a team present to their client. Gotcha. And the reason for that is, is, you know, as I'm sure you know, a uh, kid in a candy store, if he thinks all the candy's free, he's going to want to stay there for hours and <laughs> eat every piece of candy he can. So with with commercial clients, with agencies or, you know, business or whatever, you kind of have to put a, a reasonable limit on that yep. and say, like, I'm happy to do more, but we're going beyond what we promised. So we'll have a conversation about budget. Yep. For that. So I, I do that with photographers and usually like, you know, but I were like, okay, you know, a couple of changes, like maybe there's 20 images. And so on the first one, you go through more rounds. Like now I've got your look dialed in. Yeah. We'll do that for all the rest. We'll present to the client. And then we get the two rounds with that. Uh, pharmaceutical jobs can involve more rounds. Mm -hmm. So it's part of the reason why, you know, you, you tend to want to estimate higher for a pharmaceutical job because, you know, they they can say we need we need this in two days and then they'll take two weeks to get back to you with the feedback yeah. on that which is real, always kind of fascinating but I hear pharmaceutical stuff is all driven by legal the, uh. the, the lawyers determined everything for that so so that's its own thing but a product job or a you know a lifestyle shoot or something like that for a photographer it's usually two or three rounds for movie poster stuff that's going to be you know it's entirely driven by the agency I'm working with and the um, and the studio they're working with. There's so many moving parts with a movie poster and stuff. Sometimes it's really complicated, whatever. And like, you need a lot of eyes looking at things so like, oh, I didn't notice this little, you know, crumb sitting over here on the side because there's so much stuff going on. Sure. So you go through those processes. And usually with that, you know, the agencies tell you, you know, track your hours and, and build the hours as yeah. opposed to, Here's a layout. Give us an estimate and stick to that layout. Uh, there was a project I worked on with with a friend recently for uh, one of the streaming companies, and that one went through way more rounds of revisions than we thought. 
and it was partly a mix of the studio, the end studio being, um, you know, picky about things, but also the art director deciding, oh, there's one more thing I saw, one more thing I saw. Like, wait a minute, <laughs> this was supposed to have gone to the point where it's been submitted to the to the stars in the film, the talent for approval. And that should just be like, oh, can you just make my, you know, take this thing away from my eye? And then you're done. It should be like that. And right. I was kind of like, oh, let's change the hair. Let's change the background. Let's. So <laughs> sometimes the, the train comes off the rails and, and like, okay, we're just tracking the hours. A friend of mine the other day, he said to me, when there's two people in a car, it's easy to decide which radio station you want to be on. But when you're on a bus and you ask every single one of those people what radio station we should be on, it just gets to be chaos. There's got to be one job that was the job that you said, I am never doing this again. <laughs> There's got to be something that sticks out like, no matter what I do for the rest of my career, that is never going to happen again. Do you ever have one of those jobs? There are people I don't want to work with or <laughs> you know, agencies, whatever, sure. you know, I, I don't want to work with again just because like, okay, that's just a train wreck. In the early 2000s, when I was doing a lot of freelancing in-house, I started freelancing at this one uh, small entertainment ad agency, Bemis Balkan. And it was great. And I, I freelanced there like 80% of the time for a year and a half. And so they wound up hiring me full-time. And that was great. A few weeks after I got hired full-time, the production manager left to go to another place. So like, I became the production manager as well. I had helped out with, with doing the production side, which is like, you know, you have you have the layout for the ad, ad, you take the retouched artwork, you put that in, now you've got all the text, you've got the titles, you've got all the little logos and stuff have to go in, you have to make sure all the specifications are right, you get all that delivered, everything packages up right, that's what the production side was. So like, you know, it was a way to keep busy and like, sure, I, I want to help out. So I did that there and then I went to another place uh, that, that paid a lot more, but the support team for that was a lot different mm -hmm. so it didn't work nearly as well and so I, I realized like you know the production side is something that i i don't want to get into to like oh can you just put this in the final layout and, and add all the crops and like no no it, can you just can you just <laughs> you know, it, it's like every time i every time since then that i've tried to help out like no this this is why i don't do that anymore when i you know went back to freelancing on my own I did the finishing work for one place. Like, oh, you know, we don't have a somebody to do the uh, the final mechanical thing. Can you do that for us? And then their building block, you know, the, with all the legalese stuff, had to go around the frame for this. And it was like just a nightmare to get that right. And then they weren't familiar with the process. So they didn't know about what size things had to be. And like, yeah, and every time I've tried that, so I, I don't I do not do that side anymore. I, I don't like to do mechanicals. I don't like to do production work. So that was a lesson. Yeah. But, you know, most, mostly I, I've been really lucky. Almost all the clients I've worked with have been have been really good. You know, I haven't been burned too often with a client that, that doesn't pay you or something like that. It happens on occasion. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've been pretty lucky that way. Part. You know, so I've, I've been I've been fortunate. Fingers crossed it keeps up that way. That's good. I think I think you, you've learned already how to navigate, like you said, that minefield. Switching off of the actual work for a second and going more towards passion for you. I know that you do not only the retouching movie posters, commercial work, but you've kind of found this wonderful place that you love to live in color grading and teaching color grading and just talking color theory. Has that always been something that out of 
all of the techniques and workflow that you've created, is that your happy place? Just doing doing color. I've taught classes and and workshops in Photoshop and retouching for a very long time, and I really enjoy doing that. The color grading thing, I think, for the last uh, three or four years, has been an area like here's a whole new area to explore and mm. and learn. You know, learning about color harmonies and and how that works. And like that shot with the paddleboarder that you talked about, um, mm -hmm. one of the things you know was doing with that was Photoshop used to have a tool built into it called uh, the Color Themes Extension. Uh, it died for some reason. I have no idea why Adobe didn't keep that living. But it, it was a really cool extension. So you could have your image open and have, have uh, this extension window pop up. And you could sample colors from your image and map them out on a color wheel. Oh, interesting. So you could have up to five, co five colors that you could sample at one time. But you see how they all relate it. And they go like, oh, you know, the blue on this guy's shirt, if I n move it a little bit towards cyan, it's in a better color, color harmony with all the other shots. So that was what I did in that shot. And it, you know, it was just fascinating. Like, once you make that little move, like, wow, everything just falls together better now. And, it, you know, sometimes it's a matter of changing the mood for that. Uh, a friend in, in Serbia, uh, Marcos Tomatovic, is an amazing photographer. And he puts on a, uh, a photo festival every year in uh, Serbia called Fotorama. Okay. So I got to go there a couple of times and, and speak. He's inviting me to come back again this late June to go back to Serbia and, and do a workshop there. So I'm looking forward to that. But um, one of the shots when I was working on an article about color grading, he had a uh, really uh, sort of ethereal looking shot from somewhere in Serbia. It's on top of a hill and there's like an old carnival thing. So there's a tall merry-go-round kind of thing. Often in the distance, you see the hills going down in the city and the sunset and stuff. And it was really kind of moody. Like, And I was looking at this like, oh, if I move the shadows this way, it just, everything just becomes sort of like this tense kind of spooky thing. If I move the shadows this other way, well, now there's this really warm, uplifting, hopeful kind of image. And just the, the power of making a subtle change and the different feelings that created the different moods that created i uh, was really powerful so it, it's it's the latest kind of thing that the last few years or so i really loved exploring it and learning more about you know an awful lot of what i i try to show people is about uh, the workflow thing this is one of the things where as a retoucher if you work with other retouchers if you work in a place where you're sharing files with other retouchers you learn workflow really well because you know you, you learn this is why you have to name your layers. This is why the layer order should go in a certain way. Here's how to build a file so it's adjustable and workable and all. And um, one of the things that you really learn is, like with color grading, is if you're doing the color grading at the end and you keep your color grading layers as simple as possible, it's a lot easier to dial in and to, like, you have 10 images and they all have to have the same color grade. Now you just copy one set of layers and adjust them a little bit as you go from one to the other and you have a consistent looking batch of images. And there, there are some people like, you know, I just use this extension and it throws on, you know, a dozen layers and I do another dozen layers and a new dozen layers. So I've got all oh, this at 5%, this one at 3%. Like, well, you don't really know what's what and you don't know how to adjust something and you don't know why it's working. So I'd much rather people start off learning why it works and being intentional about the color they're doing and keep it simple so it's easier to manage and work with. 
And those are the kinds of things that I try to teach about the color grading as opposed to there's a great trick for making this pop in a certain way. You know, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier, where as tools improve and do better things for us, it also makes us lazier and not learning where some of this comes from, right? You should have a decent understanding of color harmony before you start using a lot of these plugins. Otherwise, if you are asked to make any changes, you really don't know where to start. I learned that lesson really hard really early on. Um, when I was trying to create consistency between images, I'd grade one image and it would look awesome. And then I'd do the next image and then it didn't look so great. So I tried to copy, but it didn't apply the same way to the same image. And it just, it started to get real muddy real quickly. And I started to understand that my workflow was just all over the place and it never was consistent. Where do you find that most photographers, retouchers, where do they go wrong in their workflow that eventually they correct? But where's some of that common mistake area? Biggest thing is remembering to have a, uh, a real critical eye. And, and I don't mean you know, criticizing your work, but sure. you know, an, eye, an eye for detail, an eye to, to see when things are working, when they're not. When it comes to being a retoucher, it really helps if you have a background in photography or in art, because you need to understand composition and color and lighting and things like that. I've seen people who were who were more technical minded, didn't have a background in that, and they could show you every page of the manual and, and explain every tool in that. But when it comes to you know doing work, they have no clue about why this doesn't work. So so that's the first thing is you know make sure you're understanding that. So they'd be like the photographer that you know thinks you're doing a great job of retouching but like wait a minute there's a big smear mark over here that you completely forgot because you got you forgot to give a close look at your image another thing like you said is uh learning to have a, a regular workflow you know I, I find that it's really helpful for me if i'm doing a portrait that i have a set way that i, I work on this not that i'm trying to be uh too restrictive but i find i find if i'm doing a, a retouching on a portrait i'll have one layer that i make where I just clean up everything I know has to go out. And then sort of my get familiar with the image kind of thing. So, you know, I, I zoom in close and I'm particularly with faces. I get caught up in, in chasing down stray hairs and things. I'll spend a lot of time cleaning that up and stuff, but I'm getting to familiar with the image. And then like, okay, I, I'll look at this like, okay, I know the eyes are going to need some work, particularly, you know, if it's a, a middle-aged or older person, uh, especially if it's a woman, you, you're going to want the lines around the eyes worked on somewhat, maybe lines on the forehead or whatever. So we'll make a, a separate layer for lines around the eyes. And I'll call it lines around eyes. I'll retouch those out, and then I can slide the opacity up or down based on how strong it should be. Like Just a little hint, like very low opacity. You know, like, oh, we really want to step on this and make her look 20 years younger? Great, we just slide the opacity up. So having that workflow really helps with that adjustability not flattening layers uh, because if you're a commercial retoucher, if you're working for other people, you're never the final decision maker. Right. So when you like, I did a bunch of this work and I flattened it and then I did a filter on it. Like, well, now you've locked yourself into a decision. And like, why'd you, why'd you go so far on taking the lines out from under the eyes? Like, well, I thought it needed like, well, can you bring them back somewhat? You know, a little too heavy. Like, Oh, that's about 20 steps back and I flattened things. I don't know if I had the layers. Right. That was a real problem. 
So, so not flattening layers, keeping your, your file structure in a way that you can adjust and be flexible with. And then doing the color adjustment, the color grading last uh, for that. There are people who like will do that right up front and then you do retouching on top of it. Like, well, now I'm locked in. Mm-hmm. You know, so you really like the idea of, of cool shadows and warm highlights, but now you decided I want to reverse that. Well, now, now you're kind of locked in and you're not going to get as good a result. Yep. So it's a matter of, of you know, being methodical like that. And those are the areas where I find uh, photographers running in, into that. And then people who haven't been share, haven't been in a situation where they like share their files with other people will like, you know, composite artists who start off with the subject and they put the background on top and they cut a hole in the background for the subject to show through. And then they do something else and they cut another hole for the subject to show through. Like, you know, if the subject's on top, you just have one mask to worry about and it's easier <laughs> to adjust. So there, you know, there, there's, there's one friend of mine that, that does a lot of compositing work. And she said like, yeah, I know everybody tells me I'm wrong. I make this work. Like nobody's going to tell you you're wrong. Right. But you'd have an easier time if you changed that workflow. Yeah, you know, I, I find the same thing when I'm working with video as well. I talk to a lot of people about color grading video, which is its own bag of worms altogether. And there's the current trend of just grabbing a LUT lookup table and just throwing that on top of the footage and then working on exposure and shadows and highlights. Then there's the school that's just kind of get your white balance, shadows, highlights, get all the exposure stuff done first and then add the LUT. And that's kind of the camp that I sit in because it's the last step. The color grading for me is always the last step. So, all right, chalk one up for Matt, doing something right. (laughs) (laughs) Things that you had mentioned in there, give me pause because I could go down a million different roads with techniques and workflows and, and, and all of that. I take Kate Woodman, for example, her color work right? Where she gets a lot of this in camera right away. It's wonderfully harmonious and it adds so much emotion and element. Do you find yourself as a personal style, forget about the art directors and whatnot, do you find yourself leaning in one style or another? Bright and airy versus dark and creepy. Where do you, if you had carte blanche to do anything you wanted, where does Dennis's heart lead for your grading and your style and your voice? I'm a big believer in, as a retoucher, not having a style. I know, I know friends who, uh, who have said like, you know, retoucher friends who shoot, you know, work kind of like beauty stuff. Like people hire me for my style. Like, great. When it's not that style they want, you're not going to get a job. For my personal work, you know, like um, I started out in photography, but I spent longest time not really, you know, being serious about trying to you know take good photos or whatever so last summer my wife and i went to newfoundland and we took a uh, a workshop Mm -hmm. with renee robin and curtis jones and just had an absolute blast you know my my wife gave me a a canon r6 body so i had to get some lenses we had a a canon m5 body that we already had some lenses for so you know we had a great time shooting and that rekindled the whole level like i i can take decent pictures i i can you know like (laughs) They're not masterpieces, but it rekindled that love. Yeah. And then last uh, January, uh, had a bunch of friends and we went to Death Valley and, and had a chance to shoot. And like the success rate came out, out a lot better for that. So in those, it's more about my style, what speaks yeah. to me and stuff. And when I'm shooting, I, I find I tend to be drawn more towards dark, mysterious, you know, not quite gothic but almost in that kind of vein, you know, yeah. feel about things. And my wife for the longest time, like uh, a lot of the photography I would do before them would be 
know, I, I go to a city for a, to do a workshop or something. I would take a half a day afterwards, just walk around taking pictures. And they're like, oh, here's this cool building. I saw and like, I'm trying to, you know, change around. I'm like, why is everything dark and moody with you? Like, I don't know. There's something kind of cool about it. So, so I, I think my own grading style tends to be more like dark, moody. But, you know, I, I find myself varying because like some of the shots we did in Death Valley, like this is making awesome black and white and yeah. playing around with, you know, black and white stuff. This other one, like, ooh, if I do this really kind of cool radical color grade on it, it looks really kind of cool and, and interesting. So, you know, I, I find it, it's more playful in that sense. You know, as someone that lives in the world of taking other people's work and helping them realize their vision, when you're shooting like you did in Death Valley, do you go into your photography with a certain vision in mind of what you're going to do afterwards? Or are you trying to get it in camera right there? Do you have to, you know, battle your own habits of knowing that you can do anything in post, but are you trying to get everything done in camera so that you do as little work as possible afterwards? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. I, I, I feel like I'm still, you know, like almost back to the beginner stage in, in yeah. terms of, of shooting for that, which is a lot of the fun to find something, you know, so long, like, oh, you know, I'm starting over again. In, in some case, in some cases where you look at the scene, like, oh, this, I just want to capture this way it is and, you know, maybe enhance the contrast or something like that. And other things like, you know, you, you start to look at it like, oh, what if I play with this and, and make it go like that way? So in mid-February, uh, the friend who originally had the idea to go to Death Valley, a fine art photographer friend that I worked with, she had a show at the Palm Springs Modernism uh, Festival. So my wife and I went to the to Palm Springs for the weekend. And the day after we went to the show, we were going around. The Annenbergs have some uh, big home there, some big estate or whatever you get tours of. And so we're on a tour of the gardens or whatever like that. And so like we had some time like, oh, you know, there's these cool cactuses or whatever. I'm, I'm going to shoot these just because it's got some sort of a graphic looking thing. And they're like, I'm definitely going to play with it afterwards because I'm trying to get some element. Whereas you know, like sometimes when we're in Death Valley shooting a, uh, a landscape or shooting a model, I just want to capture, you know, the look of this model or the look of this landscape. So I'm still figuring that out. One of the things I worked on from the Palm Springs uh, thing was, you know, there was these barrel cactuses in the garden that I found this color grade that was really great. Blue shadows and sort of a, uh, a greenish yellow highlights. It looked, wow, that looks really cool. So last weekend, my wife and I worked, walked down to the local farmer's market. On the way back, we're passing and there's these tall cactuses like, hey, that would look cool with this too. So I'm shooting that with the intention of adding that color grade to it. So yeah. it's sort of a blend. But, you know, I'm still feeling my way out, you know, as a photographer, still figuring out how to knock the rust off and be more intentional rather than just, you know, happenstance for it. Get on the bus. It's a it's the lifelong journey, right? We're always trying to get a little bit better and learn a little bit more. And like you said, stay in that student mindset as long as we can. So what's coming up for you? What what projects do you have in the works? What are you working on outside of the webinar that I know you have coming up and the education and the, the movie posters and whatnot? What else do you have coming up? You're supposed to start working with a new entertainment client, which I'm really happy about. You know, a chance to work on that. I have no idea what that project's gonna be. So, you know, yeah. got that going on. Planning different classes and things. So like got the color grading webinar coming up. Yep. And then I'm gonna be doing uh, in-person classes uh, here in, in the LA area in May. 
yeah, er, early May, I'm, I'm doing one uh, on portrait retouching. And then I think a few weeks later, we have one scheduled for uh, frequency separation. Mm-hmm. So it'll be, you know, like in person again, you know, with, with a group of students, which will be a lot of fun. And one of the things I want to I want to you know keep working on more is developing the idea about doing workshops and things. Uh, you know, as Nicole had been encouraging me, like, don't rely on other people to invite you and, and ask you to do this stuff. You know, you've got enough together to go and do your own. So I'm trying to work on developing that because it's something I really enjoy. And I figure eventually somebody figure like, oh, you know, like there's lots of younger people will send the retouch work to you. Like, well, they'll still want to learn from me. So, you know, you have to think of these plans out. You don't start building a house and expect you to live in it the next day. You have to plan out years in advance and, and start you know, building your plans now. So I'm, I'm working on that aspect. You know, there's been this huge move for a lot of folks in the creative industry to to start stepping up and teaching others what they know. And this kind of comes back to that collaborative question that I asked you way earlier about groups of friends helping each other out. It seems to be we all have these different specialties. We can all do amazing things that other folks can't do. Why not put that knowledge out there? The barrier that I see a lot of us getting caught in is, well, I don't know how to put it out there. I've got the knowledge. I want to do it. I have no idea how to sell it, teach it, get people in front of me, record it, do any of that stuff. So that seems to be the barrier. It's a big struggle for a lot of folks. And I'd love to see you blossom in that space and have a lot more people understand what you do. Well, when it comes to color grading, you mentioned Kate Woodman and and she, she, you know, we call her the queen of color. Yeah. Uh, you know, she, she has a great course with uh, ProEDU on, on color grading, which, which she does a lot with. Uh, so there's a lot for that. You know, the, the thing I, I really enjoy about uh, the teaching is not only that you're giving back to people, but the best way to learn how to master something is to teach it because you have to think of it differently. But also during the course of sharing that with other people, Something, somebody will make a comment, somebody will ask a question that sets your mind in a different way. And then when you have a group of peers, when you've built up, you know, and you're connected with a community of peers, everybody's sharing like, you know, like uh, when I was first trying to figure out re- uh, uh, frequency separation, uh, I was freelancing in house at, at a uh, retouching boutique here in the LA area. And that friend Dan Ekoff was, uh, was there and I uh, mentioned him like, yeah, you know, I've, I've been playing with frequency separation. I haven't quite found a real use for it yet. And just out of the corner of his mouth, he said, as he's passing by, he says, well, it's really good for wrinkles. And he walks away. And so that weekend I went home and, and like started playing with it. Like, oh my God, the floodgates open. <laughs> like, now I understand this. And I see the power of this thing. And then like Earth Oliver had had his uh, frequency separation 2.0 workflow, which even more opens the floodgates. So it's in sharing these things and, and connecting with people and everybody sharing things that your bag of tricks just grows and multiplies. Yeah. And if we have the idea of like, I have a little bag of tricks, I'm going to protect it. Your bag of tricks will get shrinker smaller and smaller over time. Yeah. Whereas the more you share, the more your bag of tricks grows and the better you become. And the other great thing is uh, socially, you wind up connecting with peers and friends and, and, you know, feeling much better as a human being because you've got a community around you that, that you connect with. <clears throat> Doing something a certain way is just, a way it's not the way right and there are every time i talk to a photographer or a retoucher or a producer of any sort artist of any sort 
I'm fascinated by how their mind works in the process. And I realize, oh, I thought this was the only way you could do frequency separation. And then there's nine other slightly subtly different methods to do it that have pros and cons, right? And you just find the right specific screwdriver for the right specific screw. And, you know, you go with that rather than trying to go after the screw with a hammer because it's all you know how to do. So the more you have in that toolbox, the better. And it's just, I love hearing that people are sharing these different techniques and tweaking it and seeing what works for them in different situations. That always makes me feel really good. That reminds me, uh, Nino Batista, who's a good good teacher and a good photographer, he has a, uh, a different workflow on frequency separation that he shared with me. Like, I've got to spend a little more time playing with it because mm -hmm. like, like, oh, there could be some cool ideas with that. It's like something I hadn't thought of. He's got interesting tools. I've, I've done workshops with Nino um, and great guy, great photographer, and really into the actions and making things a workflow work better for people and cutting out a lot of the steps that they could make mistakes on. So he's giving people a little bit more of a path. And I, I really like that. Dennis, this has been amazing. I, I'm very sensitive to your time. I know I'm taking up most of your afternoon. I hope we get the chance at some point to sit down at a table together and uh, laugh a little bit more. But thank you for being so generous with your time today. I'm really looking forward to the webinar with the Artist Forge. I will be there. I can't wait for it. I cannot recommend it more highly for anybody that wants to learn from one of the best. So Dennis, thank you. I will talk to you soon and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking with you and, and always great to be with you. Hey there. Can I ask you a favor? If you're loving every minute of the show, and I hope you are, then subscribing is like becoming an honorary member of an exclusive club. Subscribing means you'll never miss a single episode, and trust me, you won't want to miss what I have in store. But here's the extra special request. I'd love it if you could take a moment to leave a five-star review. Your review is like a virtual high five. It lets me know I'm on the right track and helps others discover the show, too. Your feedback and support mean the world to me. I read each and every review, and they inspire me to keep bringing you the best content possible. So grab your phone and show some love with that five-star review. It's quick, it's easy, and it makes a huge difference. Thanks so much for being an amazing listener. Together, let's keep the conversations going. Subscribe, review, and let's make this podcast journey unforgettable.